Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Where are we? We are in Whetstone on the outermost reaches of North London. And who are you? My name is Simon Mottram. I'm the founder and chief executive of Rafa. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So riding around here for 25 years, living, working in North London, but you're not from North London. No, I'm from Yorkshire. I'm from the uh, People's Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire. Uh, God's own country. Definitely cycling country. Well, totally, yeah. I'm, I, I may not have told you before, Matt, but I'm possibly the fourth. It might now be the fifth most significant cyclist from Rotherham, <laughs> falling well behind the Downing brothers, Ben Swift. And I'm sure I met a, met a bloke the other day who's also from Rotherham, <laughs> who was stronger than me as well. So <laughs> I'm dropping down the table of Rotherham cyclists. Uh, did you race? I've done two races in my life if you don't count sportees, which we shouldn't. And uh, yeah, I've pinned on a, a proper number twice, both cyclocross races, which I quite enjoyed, actually, but it was never going to work for me for a number of reasons. One being I was never fit enough. Two, having kids and then having a disabled son and then working, and I was just never going to take all my time yeah. training. And I think if you don't get fit enough, then... It is like banging your head against a wall. So the traditional cycling industry probably always saw me as a charlatan. You know, some nodder, a Hubbard. You know, every country's got a different word for people like me who love riding but don't race. And actually, I think in that, in that fact is probably the main reason that Rafa succeeded. Because I am a Hubbard, you know. I'm not some pointy-nosed kind of dour racer who only thinks that riding a bike is about going fast and crushing people you know and eat, eating carrots and watermelon and weighing your food yeah, I'm, yeah i've never weighed my food i can confidently predict i will never weigh my food that's one of my commitments to you matt i'm sure you have weighed your food but <laughs> never never weigh my food it would be too I think heavy that's it. i'm gonna do a t-shirt with never weigh your food on it <laughs> But that's what cycling needed at the time, isn't it? Is someone to appreciate it for the aesthetic value. Is that, is that what you felt? I mean, like you, I grew up watching the tour and just thinking it is this 
phenomenal circus of colour and athleticism. And I didn't think I must go and ride a bike. I just thought this is weird and wonderful and slightly foreign and exotic. And yeah. it, that was what turned me on to it. Yeah, there's definitely, it's got, it's got everything, hasn't it? It's got all of that. But for me, it wasn't, wasn't the aesthetics, actually. It was because it was I rode a bike and I, I always loved it. I just thought this is just the best thing you could possibly do. I absolutely love it. I love it riding with friends on my own, you know, going a long distance or just doing a few loops like we're doing today. It makes me feel really good. And it's also connected to this amazing sport that is also incredibly inspiring and with human beings doing incredible things. The fact that there was an aesthetic that was all so beautiful was just another reason to love it. Before rapper existed, what did you wear? <laughs> well... I wore what everyone else wore, probably, so in the old days it would have been primary coloured polyester, sort of simple kind of fairly old-fashioned stuff, and um, Tudor, Tudor tights in the winter, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then in the early 90s and through the 90s it was pro-bike kit, so I don't even remember pro-bike, well pro-bike kit still exists, I think, but it was a mail-order firm and they basically got hold of all the replica team kit. So we all, well, people like me, bought replica team kit. Yeah. So I had all of them. You know, I had Chateau Dax and Fassa Bortolo and Polti and all these horrendous team kits. My favourite of which was Mercatoni Uno. Not because it was nice kit, because it was really quite horrible, yeah. but because it was Pantani. And actually, when, when we did our... Pantani celebratory jersey in 2014 and we went went to meet his mum and his mum was very suspicious of anybody frankly because you know they believe that he was hounded into into death and what have you we were having a really tough time explaining why we wanted to do this and it was only when I put, pulled out a picture on my phone of me in about 2001 wearing Mercatoni Uno kit somewhere in Tuscany that she looked at each other, ah, oh, a fan, a tifosi, ah, oh. and then, then all the doors opened and it was great. And why Pantani in particular? What was it about him that makes him your absolute hero? Well, I, so the reason I love cycling isn't that it looked cool, but that was a nice extra. It's because it's this human thing. It's this bit like boxing. It's this amazing human experience. And you see people laid bare, don't you? You know, people go beyond what normal human beings are expected to do yeah. and that was the appeal because for most of us we don't get to do that we can push ourselves on a climb or whatever but we get a little inkling of how hard that must be and so it's intensely human and that's good and bad so for me Pantani was this kind of intensely human hero tragic hero I suppose yes because when, yeah, when he won he won with the most ridiculous panache and flourishes. And the most ridiculous amount of drugs in his system. But exactly, but he was also, you know, he was trapped and he was fragile and, you know, the guy committed suicide in a really tawdry, sordid kind of way. Yeah. It's a terrible tale, but actually, isn't that what human beings, it's like an extreme version of humanity. And that's what I loved about him. He seemed fragile, even when he was winning. There was something about him. The kits he wore, Mercaterni Uno and Carrera, I mean, even 
he will, Carrera was Denim that. shorts. Denim shorts on the bike. I mean, absolutely horrendous. <laughs> was, are you sure it wasn't a reaction to that that, that created the, uh, the yeah, more sober rapper aesthetic? From a style point of view, <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, you know, nobody should wear spandex disguised as denim, should they? I mean, that just doesn't make sense in anyone's style notebook. But, um, no, it wasn't really about how he looked. It was... Although he, couldn't, he conjured up this amazing image, you know, and how many riders today do that? You know, we think that Sagan's amazing because he does wheelies and tricks and has long hair and does funny videos, but actually, he, he's fairly conventional. Whereas Pantani shaved his head, had a goatee and a nose ring that he famously threw on the ground on Monte Campione when he finally broke Tonkov. And, you know, wore a bandana and had these pirate flags and... I mean, who does that in cycling? It's, you know, professional sport is entertainment, whatever the people in the industry think. And he was bloody entertaining. And when he crossed the line winning, he would, you know, bald-headed, complete, almost naked, you know, yeah. he would open his arms out and lift his head back. And it was like he was being crucified. It was like he was offering himself up. I mean, I, I hate to be too sort of florid about this, but you look at a, a shot of him crossing the line compared to somebody punching the air or kind of you know, Armstrong gobbling up victories. And there's just a humanity about him, which I think is much more interesting than, yeah. than the guy who wins because he's strong. You know, your bike's Should, very noisy, isn't it? I'm afraid, I'm afraid it's a little bit <laughs> rattly. You have to edit out those terrible... I won't say the brand. Cause, uh... I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Just stop a second, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna stuff, to stuff something in this to just dampen it. You're right. It's, yeah, it uh, just rattles against the side, doesn't it? Yeah, it's my... It's the levers. Yes, I have the same issue when I do that. I now have this rather beautiful large pump. Yeah. Which um, basically I'm, I'm attaching stuff to my bike that says I'm not fast. <laughs> so yeah. don't expect me to attack. All right. Thank you very much. Will do. Thank you. Thanks. It's great though, isn't it? We're on this little path in the backwoods of Hertfordshire now, and it's really quiet. Except for the possibility of some Jack Russell leaping out and attacking us. <laughs> it's going to kill us. We may not make it home. What was the genesis of the idea for Rafa then? Uh, well, it's being obsessed with bike racing primarily. And it's interesting that being, not being a racer and being a charlatan, um, but being so passionate about it, um, that was the genesis really. Is like, I, I love riding, but then I also love watching this sport. And... And then I kept thinking, my God, this is so under underexposed. You know, people don't know about this. There were a few of us in London that you'd see riding around and probably a few more who watch the Tour de France every year. And then there was nobody else, really. There were only a few of us watching races like Lombardia or, you know, classic races. Or, and in fact, you couldn't really see them unless you no. went to the cafe in Charlotte Street or found old copies of Winning Magazine or Mirror Sprint or whatever, you know, you, it, was, it was just invisible. And yet it was this most brilliant sport. And so racing and the inspiration of racing for the riding I did was the, was the genesis. And I thought, God, there are so many sports out there that do a great job of connecting up extreme exploits with what everyday people can enjoy. Yeah. And cycling hasn't really even tried. And, you know, the bike shops barring a few were generally piss poor and the clothing was you know rid ridiculous and I knew it because I had to wear it um, and 
and nobody had captured what it was about this sport that I loved. And I just thought, God, maybe I can do that. I mean, a bit of a leap of faith, I suppose. But yeah, because you weren't a designer. You were, no. you were working in marketing at the time, branding, weren't you? I was a brand guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I knew about design, but I wasn't a designer. And I knew a bit about commerce, but I wasn't an e-commerce expert. Didn't know anything about clothing, but, but loved it. I was your classic amateur. <laughs> amateur at everything, really. <laughs> so, but, but very enthusiastic and with probably a strange confidence that comes from partly being from Yorkshire and partly having my father. But also you cared, right? You, you Total passion, yeah. You cared yeah. about your appearance. And aren't the best ideas those ones that you know, want to solve the problem that you have? You know, there's something that frustrates you about the, the status quo, so you take it upon yourself to find your own solution. Exactly right. How, how is this, Matt? Are you enjoying that? Can I, can I just say, Simon, <laughs> we're on a gravel road and I'm on a, an out-and-out race bike that's aerodynamic with deep section wheels. My job is to punish you for making tires. the wrong choices. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. what, um, something I may not have told you, I probably have, I've probably bored you this before, but you know, I, I was thinking, God, this, I wanted to have my own thing. You know, I was a consultant, but I didn't want to be just an advisor. I hated giving advice and then walking away. That, some people like that, but I wanted to be the principal. So I wanted to try something and do something and build something. And I kept coming back to cycling. Maybe there's something in cycling. And then a friend of mine gave me a book in 1998 or 99 called Le Tour de France Antime. And it was this beautiful book about bike racers. In French? In French. Just the most fantastic sort of study of a number, probably 12, 15 of the best riders from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And... Two things struck me about this book. One thing about it was what we were talking about before, that actually it made me realise why I love racing isn't technology or your deep section wheels or, you know, it was actually the human side. Because all these photos were photos of guys not on the bike. It was kind of around the race. Yeah. Because I suppose that was the easiest time to photograph them. So it's people lying on the hotel bed, sitting on trains, having massages, hollow eyes, yeah, crawling drawn out of dishes, faces, yeah. being supported as they crash, you know, that kind of stuff, when they crashed. Then the second thing was, oh my God, look how cool they look. You know, why don't the racers today look like Gianni Motta with his string back gloves or Eddie Merckx sort of nonchalantly looking like he's just walked off Glastonbury stage, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I could show you my notes back in the office. I've, I used to spend every night around the kitchen table sketching and writing and grabbing pictures from books and I spent three or four years talking to everybody I could possibly meet about the sport. That long? It's quite a long time in there. Oh god yeah at least. Yeah I started thinking about it properly sort of end of 99 I suppose and then it took till 2004 to to launch so yeah I just became obsessed with this thing. And were you still out? Were you stashing what people would call fuck off money under the bed, ready for the time you left the well, no, safety. I had, I had um, three children. <laughs> uh, three children, including one who's disabled. So I didn't actually have a many, much spare cash at all. So I had to go and raise money. And uh, I did my business plan. You know, I trained as an accountant after university, so I can do numbers. 
and I can do the whole sort of you know marketing spiel because I'm training that too so I wrote a good business plan but you know at the time you show people this business plan and either they weren't cyclists and thought well this is weird <laughs> I kind of see what you're saying but that's a massive leap of faith and you're very passionate and you know maybe I like what you're saying but do I believe you can do it I don't know or there were people who were into cycling and for but them had no money it was well no but some of them did but it's amazing how hard it is for some people to see stuff until it's done you know what I mean it's yeah. uh, and they would they would look at the pictures and, and read it and go oh I see what you're saying yeah yeah no that's interesting but I don't think it'll ever work because cyclists don't spend money uh, you've got to be authentic you know you've, it's got to be all about technology where's your technology um, all the stuff which are fairly sensible riposte but it's kind of the point was to create a market where that stuff was implicit and but wasn't the main reason yeah and uh, so it took me over 200 meetings and quite a lot of ups and downs and it was quite a long drawn out affair to raise not very much money <laughs> I'd brought in a, a good friend of mine and hired somebody else and there were three of us basically and I called them up at the end of December and said right okay I've got enough money for us to at least do something can't pay you very much or myself very much at all if, if anything um, but we've got till the 4th of July to launch because the tour starts on the 4th of July if we're not launched by then yeah. we're idiots because we've missed the sort of peak of the season so we had six months basically to build absolutely everything from scratch and it was really good you know it was, it was good fun because you have nothing and you you know we, we, we took a room above a haberdashery shop in Camden Town called Fantasy Fabrics did Fantasy Fabrics make this, the samples for you downstairs <laughs> no but we did curtain fabric we definitely them. used some of the uh, some of the trims and in fact we were did a ride yesterday with my tech team and we went out through Essex and we went past a place in Walthamstow where we'd made some of our cap samples, our early cap samples when we thought we didn't really know how to do it, it's like shit let's take apart a cap and try and make one ourselves yeah. go left here and we made this, uh, these samples using this fairly rudimentary kind of sewing company and uh, I used to go down there in my Ford Mondeo and uh, pick up the samples and look at them and go, oh my God, this is just so wrong. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. And we, we used sort of grow grain on the stripe and the wrong stuff in the peak. And we sort of hadn't realised that there, was, there were factories in Italy that just make caps. That's yeah. all they do. And they yeah. make them brilliantly. And so as soon as we discovered that, it's like, oh, let's do that then. <laughs> a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And also, what was yeah. the reaction like when you, your mates saw you out in a very simple black jersey with that telltale yeah, white yeah. armband? Yeah, um, some of my mates were had invested, so... They were curious. I mean, of course, you know, looking at them, they were wearing appalling kit. <laughs> so it's not like we were demigods of style. <laughs> so you didn't have to be that, that good to sort of shine through, I think. And I think the aesthetic itself was just so different and much more appealing that even though the zip placement wasn't good and it was cut too long at the back and maybe the collar was too high and... Yeah, all those teething problems that you've worked through in the first years, it just looks so much more appealing. And I mentioned the armband there, and that's, that's really become a, a signature of Rafa Design, and other people, well, other yeah. people have, have ripped you off in every which way ever since. But Yeah, they can't rip that one off because uh, we've trademarked that one. So. Yes. so where did the idea for that come from? Well, I remember there's a chap called Luke who worked with me at the start, and I said to him, listen, we've got to have something that is an identifier that isn't just the logo. So there's a visual sort of signature that we can use that lets people see that it's Rafa from a long way away or sort of, you know, close up. And it's something we can own. And so we started exploring it. And at the time, I used to, I quite like Prada Sport. If you remember Prada Sport in the, the, red the 90s. Stripe. Yeah, that little red stripe was, yeah. it was just a really nice device. And so he did, you know, probably a hundred different concepts of different things. And we were looking through them and... I saw he'd done one which was an asymmetric stripe, and I thought, I said, that's it. The asymmetry is perfect, because it's just got so much more impact, and it's, it's got an idea to it. You know, it's kind of, it's, a, it's much stronger, it'll last longer. I've not seen anyone do it. Yeah. Let's grab that one. And, uh, but then there was the inevitable backlash, wasn't there? Because people say, well, this stuff is, I, I thought it was a bit boring, and it was a bit too romantic and, and not it, it didn't reflect their experience of riding certainly in Britain and yeah. also the price point people were complaining about it's far too expensive and yeah and it got out of hand what what was it like being on the receiving end of that yeah it's uh it's all right I think you know if it, if it had been universally bad there's not many things that could be worse than that I would say but and it is a bit like being in your own sort of one-man focus group sort of sitting in the middle while people are just shouting at you and uh, Back in those days, there was, you know, the social media hadn't really started. Facebook only started in 2004, I think. But there were forums. There were forums starting on websites. And so I would ration myself to looking one night a week at the forums because we were this massively polarising thing where, almost without exception, we'd do something or launch something and there would be... 50 posts of kind of bile coming back at us, you know, who the hell do you think you are, you know, this is nonsense and blah 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 blah, you know hateful stuff, Yeah. and then somebody would start saying, 
yeah, but actually I bought it and it's really good or well, that service is really good and actually the price is all right if, you know, look at how much you spent on your wheels or yeah. blah, 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 blah. And then there would be probably 50 or so people going, actually, you know, I really love it. And yeah. if you don't like it, don't buy it. Well, there was no grey area, wasn't there? You were totally Marmite. People loved it or hated it. People weren't ambivalent. Is that what you were what you were looking for, that you, you would have a hardcore people that absolutely loved what you do. You don't create a good brand by trying to appeal to everybody. And some pushback is absolutely necessary, I would say. We're gonna go left just after this little inlet in the, on the road. Don't know what time we've got, but. 12 minutes past nine. Okay, we're, we're doing fine. Um, the challenge is that you know, I don't want it to just be for people like me and you and certain people who appreciate a certain kind of sophistication. Yeah, left. Bread and cheese lane. Oh, yeah. Oh, let me take a photo. Hang on a second. Even for those... Uh, Let's go left, yeah. Those naysayers keeping up the sort of quasi-religious vernacular, um, they can't <laughs> deny... Let's get me into more trouble. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> They can't deny Father Mottram that, uh, you know, your dogma has, has changed the look of cycling, not just, not just the, the weekend warriors, the Sunday club riders, but it's seeping into the professional sport as well. And of course you made the kit for Sky as well for a few seasons. What, what's it felt like actually changing the look of the sport that you love? I, I suppose we have done a lot of that. Um... I mean, the, the proliferation of black kit in the, yeah, in the pro peloton. I mean, if you look at the pro, the world tours today, there are, there are so many kits that are actually quite nice. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not, they may not be exactly the right colours you choose, but they're kind of simple, they're fairly elegant, they're kind of coordinated. Somebody with half a brain has put them together. <laughs> and it's actually, I, I don't want to sort of downplay what we did, but it wasn't hard to to show a different way when it was so bad you know and um but it is quite nice to look at it and see how much better it looks although if we were doing it now we would probably want to disrupt that because yeah. you know you've got to keep moving it forward haven't you and um if everyone was just all wearing black black kit which was the case in the uk in pro racing you know in the uk domestic scene a few years ago and they actually put rules in that you weren't allowed to have primarily black kit because everyone did. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, wow, well, we've, we've succeeded there then. Yeah. So you kind of need to keep moving on and putting a yin against the yang, you know. Do you feel lucky? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. I, I, I don't know, I, I, I live in fear of hubris. I do feel very lucky that we've had this amazing wave. I don't feel lucky that I've been able to pursue my dream because I had to do that. You know, and again, I, I don't want to sound, you know, egotistical or anything, but we're going right. But you just, you know, you, you have to do it. You know, you can't just, it's not served up to you on a plate. I didn't just sort of stumble across this thing. It was, you know, you speak to my wife, it's 24 hours a day, 15 years plus of utter obsession. And so I, in that sense, I don't think it's luck. But I tell you what, the, the big wave around cycling was a glorious <laughs> stroke of fortune. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really been good. And, but the fact that we were already there, you know, using a crappy surfing analogy, we were already on our board, standing up, 
when this huge wave rose up and pushed us forward. And of course, you mentioned there how dedicated you've had to be. And you've also alluded to the fact that you have a disabled son, Oscar, who has autism, severe autism. And has that, that must have made things just even harder than it would be for anybody else to, to go ahead and chase your own personal dreams. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. But it does also give you a huge amount of grit and determination because there's no way I could mess this up. You know, this is my passion for this is sometimes it's part personal and very sort of personal. A lot of it, though, is about Oscar and for him to be happy and looked after for the rest of his life is going to take a huge amount of money and a certain sort of set of support. And so Rafa has been partly my way of providing that. So, you know, if, I, if it had crashed and burned, I kind of had to do it anyway for myself. We'll go left. But, um, oh, my God, it would have been very tough. And I would have to find another way of providing for him and also taking me away from him so much my wife giving up work and you know being with him all the time yeah you know she's made a huge sacrifice so I'm off there you know gallivanting around Tuscany or California riding my bike with customers having you know it's got to be worth it for her to make those sacrifices and for him to be looked after so in many ways it's funny with you know you've met Oscar with with somebody like that, it's very tough and it's very... Emotionally, it's incredibly draining and challenging. But actually, at the same time, we get a huge amount out of having him. And it's given us a perspective and a, a focus that we might not have had, you know. Life... Everyone has distractions and challenges in their life, don't they? But sometimes it's, you can sort of run away. With Oscar, you can't run away. Sadly, lots of parents of disabled people can't cope and do run away but for us it forced us to commit and to really go for it and I think that's and he gives us a huge amount of pleasure so we've had just as much good stuff I think out of it as bad stuff sitting here today there have been moments when it's not felt like that but uh, hey listen I've just realised we've got an hour to get back Okay. and we're probably further away than an hour okay <laughs> So we're gonna. I'm gonna have to just think about the fastest way back. Okay. I think let's we're do okay. That. I think we can probably just make it. Let's go right here. Right. It's a bit gravelly. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> no, just a, just a corner. We're going this way because we then avoid the steep Three Sisters hills. Oh, I know back. those. I know those. And this will be quicker. Is my expectation. What's coming up next then for Rafa? Yeah, I think we've, we've put a, a sort of toehold in lots of different things, but sort of investing in lots of different places that we're trying to pull together. So things like having a members club is a really important pointer towards the future. Having clubhouses and being physical as well as digital. Selling services, not just products. And then starting to reach more people. You know, what we have to do is we have to go from being this very specific thing to being something which is as sharp in kind of identity but much broader in reach. 
which is you know, it's the ultimate challenge for a brand owner. Yeah. How do you go from meaning everything to a few people to meaning a hell of a lot to loads of people? You know, that's... And I can't... It'd be the easiest thing in the world just... Well, it wouldn't be easy, but it would be fairly straightforward to keep selling cool stuff to the people we know. That would be an easy life. But like riding a bike, you know, you don't just go and go around the park at 10 miles an hour. Where's the fun in that? You know, you, you have to push yourself. Life is about taking on challenges and mind is about cycling. It's about making it the most popular sport in the world, you know. This is life, isn't it? This is life. This is life. So, bike. you know, there's a climb over there. You'd have to go and do it. You don't, don't take the valley roads, you know, go over the top and maybe so, do it quicker than last time and see if you can enjoy it a bit more and, you know, push yourself. Simon, brilliant as always talking to you. Thanks a lot for showing me your home roads. Very welcome. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.